unlocking true happiness with venerable Tenzin Choki. Welcome to Unlocking True Happiness. I'm Venerable Tenzin Chogi, a monastic practicing in the Tibetan tradition. Each episode of Unlocking True Happiness will explore the Buddhist teachings as they're applied in our daily lives to deepen our experience of genuine well-being. Topics combine ideas from Buddhism with those from the fields of positive psychology, Western philosophy, and current events. This interview was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience as part of the Healing the Body, Healing the Mind online conference in partnership with Jamyang Buddhist Center's Science and Wisdom Live project. This morning when I was thinking about our time together, I was just so excited to be, because there's more that we've been talking about since the last time we taught together that we'll be bringing in to this conversation. So usually what we do at the very beginning when we teach cultivating emotional balance courses together, we start with a definition of the emotion and a discussion of the function of the emotion. So how would you define shame? Yeah, it's it's actually been a bit of an easier job since 2014. So that's when Brene Brown's uh, YouTube video kind of went viral. I think I received it at least a dozen times yeah, over the course too. of a month. And it was great because prior teaching cultivating emotional balance, shame was an emotion that people really struggled with, especially struggling to disambiguate between guilt or regret or overall feelings of anxiety and fear. And it certainly is an emotion that's well studied in developmental psychology, meaning our very early part of life, that point around four or five years old, when we start to recognize that others are thinking different than us and we gain an ability to both have true empathy and shame. Mm. So we know about it from that point of view, but for adults, it's, it's something that's not as well described. And the simple definition that my dad, Dr. Paul Ekman, and a number of other psychologists rely upon is shame is really a feeling that there's something fundamentally wrong about you, something that if it was discovered, people wouldn't like you, people might even feel disgusted by you. And with that, it's a real identification with this idea of what's wrong about us. So the simple distinction between that and guilt is I did something wrong. And I also don't want someone to find out. And I also don't feel that great. But there's a stronger identification when we're thinking about shame, not just I did something wrong and bad, but fundamentally, I am wrong and bad. Mm, mm. And I have a quote, actually, you mentioned Brene Brown and, and on a podcast, a recent podcast, she said, shame is the fear of disconnection. We're so hardwired hard for love and belonging. So shame is so powerful, the fear of disconnection. We haven't lived up to an ideal or accomplished a goal that makes us worthy of connection. It's this idea, I am unlovable or I don't belong. So yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly what you said. 
So in terms of shame, you know, we often say that these emotions that are universal always have a function. So shame is such a difficult emotion to feel and so unwanted for us, it might be hard for us to relate to the fact that shame might have a function. So what, yeah, I'd love to talk about that a little bit. What's the function of shame? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting, Brene, Brene is making the idea so relatable uh, and, and literally so relational. So how does shame interact with the thing we care about most in our life, which is, yeah, being with others and how to achieve that. So when we think of shame and we also think of guilt and we also think of empathy, these are what are called self-conscious emotions. So I can be angry at, um, you know, this mug of water, if it's spilled, I'd be like, oh, why did you? But with shame, it, it's really related. So that's an emotion we can, anger, we can feel towards anything. But an emotion like shame and guilt and empathy implicitly and explicitly involve another person and involve our experience of how do we relate to our tribe? How does our tribe relate to us? Mm. So, you know, I, I, it is hard for me to go so far as to say shame is functional. It is because it's there. And, you know, for the purposes of our um, evolution, it kind of was created and has persisted with some utility. And the function or utility is how do we keep our social tribes coherent? Mm -hmm. How do we make people feel, if, you know, in this very unfortunate way that we live in North America and across many parts of the world, we incarcerate people when they do wrong. Mm. We put them somewhere else and we lock them up. Not a possibility when we rely upon every member of our tribe to survive. So then what do we do? Well, we kind of psychologically imprison them. We make them feel bad by shaming them. Yeah. yeah. And then re-including them, re-inviting them back in, right? So I don't know because like everyone else, I don't have a time machine, can't go back to our environment of evolutionary adaptedness and be like, why is, why is shame work? And yet I think if we theorize, if, if we think, hmm, how could have this helped us maintain social order? We might get a glimpse of how shame is useful. Mm -hmm. However, in our enormously individualized society and context in, in most of the modern world, that shame is something we hold alone and that we're not able to reintegrate in that communal way that historically, my guess, looking at our indigenous tribes that are still um, kind of showing us the way that we all used to live, that there is this kind of group shaming and then group reintegrating. Mm. You know, that reminds me of something that I, I, a video I listened to recently. So there's a, a psychotherapist and compassion teacher, Paul Gilbert, who's written a lot of books, and I love his work. And right after, actually last year, right after the beginning of the pandemic, he released this whole series of videos that he was trying to help people manage you know, what was going on and increase their compassion, increase their self-compassion, this beautiful series that he made freely available. And in one of them, he, he was explaining what he called the evolution of self-criticism. And it feels like it relates to what you just said. And in this, you know, I'm, I, I hope I get it right. I'm, I'm encapsulating what he said. He said, you know, self-criticism, he said, human beings socially 
our hierarchy, unlike some other animals that it's based on maybe physical strength or ability to hunt like a pack animal, like a wolf or something, it's sort of like the, the pack is like who's dominant is who's strongest and who's the cleverest at the hunt or whatever. He said, yeah, we have a little bit of that as human beings, but our hierarchy is mostly what he calls social attractiveness. So it's a combination of being physically attractive, being empathetic and engaging what, you know, Dan Goleman might call emotional intelligence, actual intellectual intelligence, maybe sense of humor, yada, yada, all of these qualities that make us attractive. And that's our hierarchy. So he said, self-criticism evolved to determine our place in the hierarchy to avoid shame attacks from others, right? So like you were just saying, our tribal past where we only related to maybe, you know, they estimate 100 or 150 people in our lifetime, like we had this kind of closed system, our, our self-monitoring really of where are we in that hierarchy? And then you figured it out and you didn't have to do it constantly. But for us now, we're having to do it all the time because we're in these complex social situations. So what started as adaptive and functional now is on overdrive. So, so many people have this harsh inner critic because this thing that was just meant to figure out your place you know, maybe occasionally there'd be some new situation and you'd reevaluate, but it wasn't just like every single situation. And I think of like, for example, immediately when he was talking about this, the example that comes to mind is like the middle school lunchroom. So there you are, the new kid in class, and you're standing there with your tray. And you know, if you go sit with the really cool kids, if you're not the coolest kid, you're gonna get a shame attack, right? So you're trying to evaluate where am I? And then you don't wanna sit with the kids that are like total losers because then you're gonna be identified in that, like you're evaluating. And I just thought it was so, so interesting. It's almost like we have self-shame to prevent shame attacks from others in this kind of weird way. And I don't know if that resonates with kind of this function of shame idea. Yeah, I, um, I'm glad you, you bring up Paul Gilbert. I love um, the simplicity of how he tries to translate very complex uh, neurophenomena into something that makes sense for everyday folks. And related to what you were saying, you know, this overdeveloped um, sense of self-monitoring. Who am I in relation to this? Who am I in relation to that? Are they better? Are they worse? Are they the same, right? And that constant... Um, evaluation, which, you know, we will, I'm sure get into soon, Tenzin, but that's really related also to contempt. Yes. Um, and what Paul Gilbert also talks about is our underdeveloped drive, which is self-soothing. So we're very good at monitoring and criticism, and yet our, our capacity to self-soothe has been deeply compromised. I mean, of course, having our community hold us in love, non-negotiable, we need it. And we still need to be able to hold ourselves in love and that to be not just, you know, that's a foundation. And I think um, it can get a bit thwarted by that uh, monitoring elsewhere. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know if I, of course, we use colloquially this idea of they shamed me, but really they're, they're being contemptuous or yes. disgusted right. of us, um, which we can delve into um, yeah, and that's kind of my next question. And it's interesting that you said developmentally, 
that shame kind of comes online, you know, at like four or five years of age, because that's generally when we're starting to interact more with others outside of our immediate family. I mean, I think in many cultures, that's when the, you know, in Western culture, that's when you'd go to kindergarten or pre-K or, you know, you start to interact more with not just your own kind of immediate group. So I wonder if there's some connection there in terms of that evaluation of like, where do I fit? Suddenly there you are with more of your peers instead of just hopefully your loving family that gives you unconditional love. Not all of us have had that experience, but yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're in an interview with your dad, Dr. Paul Ekman, that I found online from a couple of years ago, he said, and this relates to kind of what we're talking about. He, he because Eve's dad, Dr. Paul Ekman, is really famous for those of you that don't know, of identifying these universal facial expressions that correspond with a list of seven emotions, you know, and so he was talking about this in terms of shame and the facial expression, and he said, the last thing you want when you're ashamed is for others to know you're ashamed, because if they discover it, they will be disgusted with you. Then he says, guilt is about an action. I can undo guilt by confessing, by doing penance of various kinds. You can excuse guilt, but disgust is about the person. And you're never going to forgive me if you're really going to be disgusted. You're going to want to get away from me. Shame is a response to prevent the other person's disgust. And there's a lot of self-disgust intermingled with that shame. Mm -hmm. So again, this whole connection between kind of shame and connection, shame and contempt, shame and even guilt or avoiding disgust and contempt from others. So it feels like it really has a connection there. And I've heard you say before, you say, um, guilt can be a productive moral emotion. And, and you say, it sounds kind of weird, but what we try and do is move people from shame to guilt as a road to repair. And I'd love for you to say more about, you know, cause sometimes we think, wait a minute, we want to move people to guilt. That seems weird, but moving from shame to guilt is a more productive moral emotion and a way to repair. Would you love to say more about Okay. Yeah. And I think an example, um, you know, will help land this for people. So um, I'm in a, <clears throat> I'm in the middle of a big project I'm super fortunate to work on right now, and, and I'm loving it. And it's kind of squeezing me at both ends, as sometimes big projects do. And I don't feel like I have um, as much space to be available for my friends right now, for the people who I love. And so that could create a sense of guilt or a sense of shame. Right. And if it created a sense of shame, I would think, God, like I am so selfish. I'm just obsessed with work. Like I'm such a, I'm just not even, I'm not a good friend. Like I really have no ability to show up and maybe I don't even care. Right. It's, and here we're seeing like some very distorted thinking. So we're with shame very often. Like it's not as though there's nothing, but we have this kind of hyperactive aspect of it versus wow, man, in these last 11 days, it's been so hard for me to follow up on emails. I, you know, I, I feel bad about that. I know my friend's going through a hard time and I haven't been able to be there for her. So those are different, right? And so if I'm a bad friend always, because right now I'm not available, um, I would like to migrate to the, 
I haven't really been available these last 10 days, that behavior or action is something I would like to repair. And I, you know, instead of not feeling anything of just like, whatever, I'm not available right now, people need to just get over it. Yeah. Also, right, <laughs> not super helpful. So these self-conscious emotions, they do kind of instruct or guide us towards how do we sustain, maintain these relationships that matter. Right, right. And so how do we do that? How do we help people make that move from shame to guilt? Like how's, how is a way that we can actually do that? Yeah. And I want to caveat here by um, I'm describing something that's relatively mundane, right? Um, Being busy at work. Um, Many people experience shame from addiction, from prior Mm -hmm. abuse, uh, from behaviors that they believe were abusive or harmful to others. And so wanting to honor that. I'm not talking about that in this moment because um, here we are. It's uh, it's a little early in the day for that for us. And <laughs> we're going to get there in another question or two. So, And, you know, given, given the online context of training and teaching, we recognize that shame is hard for folks mm-hmm. and we don't want you to kind of peel open the deepest layers while not being held in, in true live community. Yeah. Um, so with that caveat, like how do we move people towards guilt from shame is honestly increasing our self-awareness and our insight. So when we feel completely plagued by shame, even if we are and have uh, committed an act that is harmful, that has hurt others, even if we are acting in ways that is harmful towards ourselves through addiction, fusing that with who we are ignores our basic goodness, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where Buddhism and psychology so beautifully um, can support one another. Because psychologically, I can tell you why none of that is true. But through the cultivation of knowing our inner goodness, that is actually the way we can start to meet those feelings and transform them. Because the knowledge only gets you so far, right? It's important and useful to identify. And yet we need to have that felt experience kind of forging the inner pathways as, my teacher, Jennifer Wellwood, talks about a lot so that we can face that. And also, especially for, I know many of the people here and who may watch this in the future are practitioners. And I think it's really important for us to not think that, God, I just have to deal with shame so that I can be a, I can do my practice. This is the practice. This is practice in action. So it's also shifting our attitude to become interested and excited that this is the mud from which we then create the lotus, uh, from which there is then more mud and more lotus. It's not, it's not a thing we're going to get done. Yeah, right. Oh, there was so much in that to unpack so much in what you just said. And yeah, this I was just being interviewed by somebody yesterday, a friend of mine who has a podcast, and we we're talking about this idea of like original goodness or our innate goodness, you know, in terms of kind of this Buddhist idea that's so, you know, not really supported sometimes in a culture that many of us come from where there's this idea of original sin, that you're kind of flawed from the very beginning, which I think whether we were raised religious or not, we can just sort of absorb almost through osmosis of something is fundamentally flawed from the very beginning. And I'm just trying to scramble rather than attuning to 
you know, in trying to uncover in a way this, this essential innate goodness. And it's just such a different worldview. And I find as a Buddhist teacher of mostly people who grow up in the so-called West with these ideas, that is just such a huge thing and is, is not really found so much in traditional Buddhist teachings, like ways to manage that. But like you say, I mean, I love that you mentioned like that's the practice is just sitting with all of those uncomfortable feelings. We can't, you know, I find people often when they're drawn to spiritual practice, sometimes there's a wish to, you know, leap over all the messy personal psychological mess and jump right to the bliss and the contentment and the peace of mind. And, you know, as I, as somebody who's been practicing for decades, you're always going to have to go back. So you might as well just start there and just <laughs> delve into it. And it really is the practice. It really is, you know, where the rubber meets the road. You know, one thing you, you mentioned just now was, you know, kind of getting into trauma. And I know we've both been engaging in the work of Resma Menachem. And in fact, you, you did this brilliant interview in the in the kind of 20th anniversary of the Mind and Life Destructive Emotions series that was just amazing. And in his work, he really focuses on the somatic experience of trauma, specifically of racialized trauma. And, you know, for me, when I think of his work that I've been engaging in, I think there's a strong somatic component to shame that might relate also to trauma. Because I know when I feel shame, you know, I have a lot of shame memories from childhood and, you know, I feel this kind of collapse in my body, like this strong kind of somatic component. It really triggers me to want to flee. Like that's my shame response of just disappear, become invisible, flee. And I don't know if you have anything to say if there's research about kind of the somatic experience. I know there's a lot about trauma and I I do kind of feel like, I mean, not, you know, we all have as 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 the trauma experts sometimes talk about like small T trauma, big T trauma, but we all have these responses. And yeah, what about the somatic component of shame? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Resma Menachem and um, interviewing him was definitely a, a life highlight so far. Uh, it was really incredible. And Tenzin was like, I was like cheating off her homework. Uh, we had these long discussions about the right questions to ask him. So it was a really beautiful, um, yeah, collaborative effort in finding a way to in, engage with his wisdom. And, you know, I think, um, as I was saying that, you know, ability to open up to shame as something that's part of our spiritual practice. John Wellwood, who coined the term spiritual bypass, one of the other terms he uses is premature transcendence. Ah, nice. Wow. And there's a, there's a lot of that, right? It's like, I'm just going to go up and out to that place where it's nice <laughs> yeah. and, and not learn to tolerate um, somatically the challenge. And one thing Resma Menachem, who does work on somatic abolitionism, meaning how do we manage a lot of the shame, a lot of the guilt, a lot of the discomfort of recognizing um, what we, many of us, um, well, let's just say, most white folks um, living anywhere that isn't completely uh, white, so everywhere mm. and anyone, are inadvertently creating harm. Mm. And we hear that. And, mm. you know, for some of you on the call, you might be have been doing this work for a while. And 
it's a bit more familiar, but when that is especially first kind of made clear, mm. I think that there is a somatic experience of either wanting to run away or to fight, depending on your, your specific strategy of choice. And what Resma encourages us is not to stop feeling that way, but how do we metabolize that pain in the body? Mm. Not in the mind, because we're so conceptually oriented of, well, I'm going to, you know, combat racism by donating money to great causes. Awesome. I'm going to um, really become aware of maybe implicit biases. Awesome. And what he emphasizes and is true from what we know of literature on um, embodied emotional awareness or interoception is we also need to learn how to sit with the discomfort. Mm. Otherwise, we're going to be uh, inadvertently perpetuating it by trying to escape from it. Yeah. yeah. And that's an idea. I'm not imposing this on anyone, but it is absolutely one worth examining. Yeah. You know, when you say that, it reminds me of a, a program that I used to do with um, people experiencing incarceration, and it was a year-long anger management violence prevention program. And a big part of that program was exactly what you're talking about, like teaching people ways to just be with all of their experience. In that class we did, it was amazing. It was about 26 men. It was in a men's prison, all of whom, you know, we did these sort of surveys at the beginning as we were starting the work and all of them had experienced sexual, physical, 100% emotional assaults as children, like so much trauma from childhood, you know, so much shame about the offense that had gotten them into prison. And, you know, realizing too, this connection between, I think, trauma and shame and other emotions too. And you and I have talked about sometimes shame is fundamental. And then there's a lot of acting out that comes out of shame, like anger and violence that come from shame. And then of course we can feel shame about other emotions that we have. So the anger can be first and then we feel shame about being angry or the other way around. And yeah, any insights into shame is either kind of a, a more fundamental emotion or a secondary emotion or how that relationship because I remember saying to you once long ago I said I have this theory that we you know that shame might be underlying most destructive emotions and you kind of said you might not be wrong let's think about that you know and often thinking about how fundamental so it's almost like if we find ways to just be with our shame as you suggested and really you know somehow accept it work with it, we might also be erasing a lot of our other unwanted emotional episodes. So any reflections on that? Yeah, you're not wrong, but there's more. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, emotions are temporary. Emotions are, are triggered in a 25th of a second and last usually no longer than 30 seconds, sometimes 90 seconds. Most of us experience shame as something that feels very ongoing. So we are mm. consistently re-triggering and that we're getting actually more into the territory of, you know, habits and beliefs mm. uh, as opposed to emotions. Emotions really are these, it's like the fruit um, of, of that thinking of that limited self-view. And so I think again of self-criticism, that's, that's really the territory 
uh, if that is where we're always landing as kind of a cognitive ruminative cycle, a lot of shame is going to manifest. Yeah. So I think working with those underlying, especially self-limiting beliefs um, is so, so fundamental. And that if we just are kind of um, addressing the emotions we have, I hope this is a more universally understandable metaphor, but what's called whack-a-mole. Essentially this idea of like, if you hit something down in one area, it'll come up in the other. Right. So just kind of addressing it that way, we're, we really are going to miss out a bit. Uh, and, and absolutely, we experience a lot of shame as a result of our destructive emotion episodes. So my, my dad, you know, again, world's expert on anger, quite an angry guy. <laughs> and um and had a lot of uncontrolled um anger when I was growing up especially and I think experienced a lot of regret and guilt and I don't think shame he was he was pretty lucky to not not really go there um but many people with that kind of anger experience a lot of shame or they experience shame for not expressing I didn't say anything I didn't stand up and I should have so we can have a lot of shame about our expressed especially overexpressed emotion or underexpressed emotion. Yeah, yeah, nice. I have a, just a couple more things I'd love to unpack and then we're going to transition into a more experiential part of our session. And, you know, one thing that you and I have talked about and is kind of this famous episode many years ago at another Mind in Life, uh, Mind in Life conference where His Holiness the Dalai Lama didn't seem to understand the concept of self-hatred. I think it was Sharon Salzberg that was talking about self-hatred and, you know, he's like, wait a minute, what is that? And then Alan Wallace tried to explain it to him in Tibetan for like ages and he still totally didn't get it. And then he comes back. I remember from the transcript, His Holiness the Dalai Lama comes back and says, are these people violent? Do they need to be institutionalized? And Sharon Salzberg is like, it's all of us and, you know, his Holiness talking about cultural differences with certain, you know, either emotions or these kind of worldviews. In the research on shame, there might be, I mean, I imagine for sure there's cultural differences around, you know, maybe for example, maybe body image is a universal, but how that manifests is culturally very different, like what kind of bodies are acceptable in which cultures, but are there more deep fundamental cultural differences, do you think, in what are our shame triggers, or do you think that's more of a universal human experience? It's a big question. Yeah, uh, I'd have PhD to. research project. <laughs> yes, I'd have to, I definitely, you know, I will say in general, um, you know, our emotions are universal. So this idea of there's something wrong with me is universal. How we express it and show it could be quite different. And then just as you're suggesting, Tenzin, what, you know, generates it could be different. So I imagine, you know, when we've done, of course, work with our cultivating emotional balance teacher trainers and trying to figure out what's okay in their household, huge range. Mm. Some people are allowed to show anger. Some people are not. Some people are encouraged to be with their sadness, others not. Anything we are told is, you know, not okay, especially in the emotional spectrum. If we express it or feel it, more, we are likely to feel shame. Um, Jeannie Tsai is kind of the most well-known cross-cultural mm. researcher of emotion, if folks do want to look at that, and has worked pretty hard at translating different scales and surveys to understand the differences uh, of that. 
Right, right. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, when I was thinking of this question, and I was thinking of body image, which can be such a source of shame. And when I first started traveling in India, and there being at least back then, I think now in India, they're more influenced by Western culture, but back in the early 90s, being chubby was seen as attractive, you know, in ways that it wouldn't be in the United States at that time. And it was just a whole other thing. Again, it was around body image, but the standard of what was, you know, seen as attractive was, was quite different. But yeah, there might still be some universal triggers or prompts. One final thing I wanted to ask you, and then we're going to transition here. In a recent podcast, Brene Brown was talking about how shame can be weaponized in relation to what is commonly called cancel culture, which has been a real issue, you know, in the United States, somebody says something and then they get like they lose their job or, you know, this whole repercussions, especially around social media and everything that everyone says being suddenly immediate public information. And she said quite strongly, she said, shame is not an effective social justice tool. It's a tool of injustice, not a tool of justice. It's much more likely to be a cause of destructive behaviors instead of the cure. So any thoughts about shame, you know, which I think is often used in the context of social justice. Sometimes we talk about nowadays we're trying to call people in rather than call people out and not shame them for mistakes like that. So yeah, do you have any any reflections on that? Yeah, I again I want to help people feel kind of clear on um, on contempt, especially and disgust. So when we're saying we're shaming someone, what we feel our emotion is contempt or disgust. And, and contempt is, I feel superior. Right. How could you do that? I can't believe you would do that. My God. And we, you know, you may think, oh yeah, that I don't have that. Um, and the more subtle forms of contempt are the way that we, as we are moving through the world, look at people and evaluate like, why are they wearing that? I can't believe they stepped right in front of me. Didn't they see me? So these kind of like small ways that we are evaluating and judging others and our facial expression of contempt, which is unilateral, it's the only unilaterals, is meant for someone else to experience shame. But we're not, so it's like, we're, we're, we're feeling contempt in order, if we feel disgust, it's a much higher stakes issue. It's not just, I can't believe you would do that. It's, ugh, there's something wrong with you. Of course you wouldn't be able to do that. Right. So there's um, John and Julie Gottman, the kind of very well-known researchers and trainers around relationship who studied married couples for decades and looked at conversation between couples and are able to predict 10 years out which couples stay together the couples who feel anger and even contempt towards one another, they, they bucket contempt and disgust together, which mm -hmm. I don't think is, is, uh, is, is, is quite um, uh, specific maybe enough. Because mm -hmm. if you feel angry or wish that someone would do better, you're still in the game with them. If you feel disgust towards them, the relationship will not survive. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah. yeah, the difference between, yeah, and I think a lot of people conflate disgust and contempt, but like you say, you know, there's different facial expressions, 
for each of those different kind of out. Yeah, good disgust face. Eve is the expert because she was photographed in 250 photographs in her no, 16. Yeah. 16 at the age of 16 years old, she was already the expert in the facial expressions. <laughs> so, thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you, Kenzen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about this episode and browse our episode library by visiting unlockingtruehappiness.org. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Unlocking True Happiness is produced by Matthew DeVaris, intro by Russell Taylor, and our theme music is Nightingale by Asari. Stay safe out there. See you next time.